Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Good morning. Um, I'm so glad to be back with you guys today for another week. Um, sorry I couldn't be with you in person today, um, but we've had a great week of studying the Word of God. Um, I've hoped that you've been enjoying going through this gospel as much as I have, um, especially with Easter last week. It has been such a sweet blessing to be studying the last days of Christ in preparation for this teaching. I've read these passages over and over in my life so far, and I've heard some of the stories from a very young age in Sunday school and so on, but I've never gone through them with the detail that we've done for the study and the depth that I've gone in getting ready for today. I think it's just a good reminder that we can never spend enough time with the Word of God. There is always more for us there. So this week, we're going to make another significant turn in the narrative, and we're focusing on the last week of Christ's time on earth. The rest of the book of Mark happens in just one week. Today's scripture is from Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of that week. On Sunday, we have the triumphal entry, and then Jesus visits the temple. And then on Monday, he curses the fig tree and cleanses the temple. On Tuesday, we have the lesson of the fig tree, and then Jesus teaches in the temple and is challenged by the leaders. And then lastly, on Tuesday, Jesus tells about the future, and we'll touch on that more next week. So I'm going to go through some of these vignettes today, but not all of them. There's just too much going on uh, to touch on each and every one. Uh, I feel like each one of them could have its own lecture, um, but we're just going to touch on a few of them today. Um, As we go through the lesson today, I'd really like you to listen for themes of authority and self-righteousness. God has really been pressing into my own self-righteousness as I've worked to prepare this lesson, and I'd really like to lean into that a bit with you ladies today. In his devotional book, New Morning Mercies, Paul David Tripp says, "Um, When you think you're righteous, you expect others to be righteous as well. So you become demanding, judgmental, and constantly disappointed. He continues the lesson with an illustration, where a parent sees their teenager's room as a complete and total mess, and he proceeds to berate the teen. How can you be such a slob? I should take every piece of your junk and lock it away until you're ready to grow up. In my day, we would never thought of treating our things this way. The teen is not thinking, my, this is helpful. This is a truly wise person who is saying very helpful things to me. I'm so thankful that this person is my parent. Now, my kids aren't teens yet, really, um, but I could definitely see myself in this scenario. Why doesn't my five-year-old do as I say? And what on earth would possess my three-year-old to destroy her bed skirt with scissors? Don't they appreciate me? Don't they value having a home and a room and more than enough toys to play with? If so, why don't they take care of them like I want them to? And why does all of it make me so angry? Because of sin. All of this is sin. My sin, their sin, the whole thing. We all have sin struggles, but they just don't all look the same. Even if we're trying to chase after God and keep him at the forefront of our lives, we unfortunately spend lots of our time living in the here and now and doing what makes us happy in our own self-righteous kingdoms of one. It's frustrating when other people don't share the same vision or agenda for our lonely self-kingdoms. And today, we're going to see the religious leaders get schooled over and over again that their self-righteousness isn't going to get them very far in the kingdom of heaven. 
It's causing them to completely miss the Messiah who is standing right in front of them, to miss out on the grace available to all, the grace that the hammer of the law couldn't provide. All right, so let's dive in and take a look at the triumphal entry. This is a pivotal moment for Jesus. He goes from doing miraculous things and then telling everybody not to tell to boldly making moves that show that he is the fulfillment of the holy prophecies of the Messiah. It is clear that the time has come for him to finish the work set before him. It's Passover time in Jerusalem. Passover is a time of remembrance for God's provision for his people and an expectant hope for the future. The Jewish people are fed up, or sorry, (laughs) they're fired up with religious zeal of the holiday and hope for the Messiah to come. The people in Jesus' time were fed up with Roman rule. They're hoping that the Messiah will come and set up a new earthly kingdom that's in their favor. Enter Jesus. He enters to Jerusalem riding on a donkey's colt. And we learned from our lesson this week that this is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Of course, not only does Jesus riding on the donkey fulfill the prophecy, but it also points us to the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, the kingdom that is outside of what everyone was expecting, the kingdom that fulfills all that they needed or would ever need. In the Old Testament, we see that kings would make a big big show of their takeover from the previous king. They would take the previous king's riches, horses, servants, etc., and parade them in front of their subjects to show their power and authority. In 1 Kings chapter 1, when David makes Solomon his successor as king, he prepares a procession for Solomon, complete with trumpets, declaration of Solomon's kingship, and Solomon riding on David's own mule. This publicly showed that David was handing over the kingdom to Solomon. In a different and particularly revolting example, we saw last semester in 2 Samuel chapter 16 that Absalom publicly laid with his father David's concubines as a demonstration of his authority as king to the Israelites during his brief coup of David's reign. But Jesus takes a different approach. He's on a humble, common animal, not very impressive in any way. This particular donkey has never been ridden before, so it has no ties to anyone else's earthly authority. The crowd seems to get it, and Jesus travels along, and they proclaim parts of Psalm 118, which was one of the traditional scriptures used at Passover time. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds also declare that the kingdom of David is coming. This connects Jesus to Isaiah 9, which we're probably most familiar with from Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. And here's the key. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Lastly, they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. This literally translates to save now, I pray. And the crowds were calling for a savior, a new king. They make a path of cloaks and wave palm branches in celebration. And the path of kings was often carpeted during ceremony. When Jehu was appointed as king in 2 Kings chapter 9, the crowd spread their cloaks on the steps before him. And the crowd here is showing honor and reverence to Jesus by laying down the cloaks from their backs down on the ground for him. 
So here we are. We have a crowd that is fired up for Jesus. They're proclaiming his authority as the king and as the savior and the fulfillment of the prophecies. This is the person they've been watching and waiting for. But they didn't really want a king who would be crucified by this time next week. They wanted a king to save them from Roman rule. That's what they thought they needed. And they were thinking in the here and now. But Jesus was planning for an eternal salvation. He was not coming to defeat the Romans and overturn their oppressive rule, but to defeat sin. He would continue to reign forevermore. He will deliver the Jews in Jerusalem that day from more than they would ever imagine. As I was reading this, I was thinking of how often we don't see the big picture. We cry out for deliverance from our current circumstances, from our current afflictions, and from our current issues and our little self-kingdoms, and we fail to willingly hold our circumstances out before God to use in his holy plan. I loved Rachel's testimony last week about her struggle to hold her plans, her time openly out before God. It's such a challenge for all of us to go all in with what God has planned for us. His plans will not be thwarted by our attitudes or and willingness or lack thereof to yield to him. But what blessings are we missing when we don't trust in his or rest in his sovereignty and submit to his authority? When we try to make God's plans fit into our nice and tidy boxes, we might venture oh, we try to make God's plans fit into our nice and tidy boxes, and we might even venture to say that God doesn't have a box in mind. Maybe he has a sphere, something like that. That would work. It would fit nice and tidy inside the box, and we would be okay with that. But what we would likely not want him to plan out is something like this. A slide that look, or a picture that looks like total chaos. But to a God who creates order from chaos, it is perfect for his bigger plan and creates a beautiful masterpiece in the end. His plan often doesn't look like our plan. We ex- what we expect and what we think should happen may never come to pass. We'll miss a chance. Will we miss a chance to see the glory of God riding down the street right in front of us because we're looking for a warrior? So the procession ends. And from there, Jesus goes into the temple. Here he surely sees that the court of the Gentiles has become essentially a marketplace. There are money changers to change out foreign coins to the common currency for payment of the temple tax because the foreign coins often had images of other rulers and therefore were unacceptable in the temple. These money changers took advantage of their captive audience and provided this service at a premium to pad their pockets. Similarly, there were many selling choice animals for the Jewish people to sacrifice in the temple. During the Passover, there would have been a high demand for both of these services. In one account, Josephus noted that there were a need for over 250,000 lambs in the Passover in 66 AD. So that's a little bit past this time, but you can imagine like 250,000 lambs, that's a lot of lambs. Um, So it's just a lot of animals needed at that time. So I had trouble nailing down the exact size of the the court of the Gentiles, but one commentary I saw said that it was larger than two football fields. So can you imagine the chaos? All these animals, all these people, the yelling, the commotion, and it was supposed to be a place of reverence, but it was so far from that. And Jesus says, or sorry, excuse me, Mark says that Jesus looked around at everything, but that since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus returns the next day and immediately begins driving out everyone who is buying and selling in the temple. He comes in with a bold authority and overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the courts. 
Jesus is upset. He's angry at the way that everyone is acting in his holy place. He has a righteous anger against the hearts of these people, of the corruption and of the self-righteousness of the priests, of the brokenness of the system that they've created. And he doesn't just nicely ask them to stop or make a polite suggestion for changes. His reaction is big and bold. This is the start of the destruction of the temple, and Jesus makes it clear that the temple is under God's judgment. As Jesus is teaching here, he references Jeremiah chapter 7, saying that they have made the temple a den of robbers. The next chapters in Jeremiah chapter 7 that Jesus doesn't shout out here address that the destruction of the temple they address the destruction of the temple in Shiloh and then says in verse 14 therefore what I did to Shiloh I will now do to the house that bears my name and then in verse 20 it says my anger and wrath will be poured out on this place and it will burn and not be quenched just like the fig tree that did not bear fruit the temple is condemned and will wither and have no future Next week, Amy is going to talk more about the destruction of the temple in more detail, so I'm not going to go into it too much. But I do want to point out that for years and years, the Israelites could only access God through the temple and through the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus was ushering in a new system where the temple of God is within each of us as believers, and we're blessed with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul writes, For we are a temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This leaves us with the need to consider our role as the temple of the living God. Are we letting corruption, self-righteousness, distorted beliefs, and hardness of heart dictate the business of our days? Our bodies are not our own. We are a temple of the Most High God. We are God's representatives of earth through His Spirit, and we should act like it. When we have sin in our temple, we need to address it with the same righteous anger that Christ has when He's addressing the issues in the temple. We need to be turning over tables and rebuking the sin in our hearts. We need to get it out. But what does that look like? It is so hard. For me, it means sitting before the Lord and asking him to reveal the sins I'm letting linger. It means asking him to help me address them head on. It means being in a community of believers where I can share my sin struggles and have accountability for addressing them. But I have to say, it does not happen easily or daily. And in a lot of seasons, it doesn't really seem to happen at all. It's not something that I look forward to. It's not a fun part of being a believer. But I must do it. We all must do this. We must alter our self-righteousness and burn it up and then sit in humility before the authority of God and allow him to illuminate our sin so that we can allow him to help us drive it out. I'm really regretting not putting any videos in here so you guys can watch those while I drink. For the rest of the text of this lesson, Jesus is challenged over and over again. His authority is in question by the self-righteous leaders in Jerusalem. Mark writes that after Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, he began to teach. And the chief priests and teachers of the law heard him and what he was teaching and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, and the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Jesus has passed the point of no return. And in the text, we see him go all in to stand firm against those who confront him. And he puts forth truth and wisdom with each encounter. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 9, it was prophesied that the wise men shall be put to shame. 
and they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what wisdom is in them? There are quite a few groups here that come to challenge Jesus, and they all have the same goal, to uphold their self-righteousness and usurp Jesus' authority. The priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. Interestingly, all of these groups were not really in agreement on many things, but they seem to be uniting by the mutual threat that Jesus presents to their way of life. All of these people confronted Jesus out of an ignorance and a self-righteousness that was completely incapable of considering that they might be wrong. They had spent their whole careers working to be right, and they were not about to start being wrong now, and they certainly weren't about to defer to the authority of anyone else, especially if it meant agreeing with Jesus, who had no training or pedigree that they found to be acceptable. The first group to challenge the authority of Jesus in this week's lesson are the chief priests and the scribes. Jesus is back in in the temple the day after the clearing of the courts, um, and so for everybody keeping track, this is uh, day three, it's Tuesday, (laughs) um, in the timeline of the final week. And so they want to know by what authority Jesus is doing these things. Jesus refuses to tell them because they don't answer his question on the baptism of John. Then Jesus began to teach the crowd and his challengers by using parables. Mark retells the parable of the tenants, and Jesus sets up quite a detailed story. And while I think I've I've understood the gist of this parable for quite some time, I didn't realize many of the details until I was studying for this week. Um, the, The priests and the scribes and the elders would have heard the setup for this story, and Isaiah 5 would have come to mind. I've highlighted some of the similarities here in the slide. Mark 12.1 says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. Isaiah 5 um, is all about God building a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press, but it yielded only bad fruit. Then God decides to take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. And then verse 7 says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. In the parable, Jesus zeroes in on the tenant farmers. They reject servant after servant. And these are the prophets. And now that they're rejecting the beloved son, Jesus. Jesus says here that the owner will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. The leaders know what this parable is about and what each element represents. But they're too self-righteous to recognize the error of their ways and make a change. And they completely reject Jesus, and instead of following him, they want him arrested. So let's switch gears here and talk about the greatest commandment. This is an interesting interaction that Jesus has with a scribe, um, in that it's surprisingly positive, which is kind of a new twist of things, nice change of pace. Um, The scribe asks, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This statement is from Deuteronomy 6.4, which is part of the Jewish Shema. The Shema is considered one of the most essential prayers in all of Judaism. The devout will recite it twice a day, once when they get up and once when they go to bed. And the first line, which Jesus says here, is traditionally recited with the hands over the eyes to increase concentration on the importance of these words. And they're considered to be the most essential declaration of the Jewish faith. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Jesus takes the scribes back to the basics. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, to the foundations of their faith. And then he continues with, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and your mind and strength. 
This is straight from Deuteronomy 6.5. It's also part of the Shema. Um, I'm not going to attempt to say it in Hebrew because it's way harder and longer. Um, but this is the call to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a call to total surrender and submission. If you give the Lord all of these things, what do you have left to hold on to? What are you holding to yourself if you've given away your heart and soul and mind and strength? You don't have anything left. There are lots of earthly kingdoms fighting for our attentions, fighting for our heart and soul and mind and strength, but we cannot let them have it. Our primary commitment is to the kingdom of heaven and its full all-or-nothing commitment. We cannot compromise. Then Jesus goes on, and the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus calls us here to go a step further in our faith and love our neighbors as ourselves. God knows that we're inclined to love ourselves and look out for our best interests. And Jesus here is showing that the kingdom of God doesn't work if we don't hold, our, hold others with as much or more regard than we have for ourselves. How upside down is this from our current culture? Then the scribe replies, you are right, teacher, and says that loving God and loving one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole of all burnt sacrifices. The scribe recognizes that the law by itself is just not sufficient, and there must be a full devotion of the heart. He is starting to understand what none of the other leaders are even willing to begin to entertain. When Jesus sees that he answers wisely, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What a praise that would be. He's getting it. And Jesus tells him he's not far from the kingdom, but he's physically in the same place as everybody else. So obviously the kingdom is not a physical place, but it's still not quite clear to the crowds how this whole kingdom thing is going to play out. They're still holding out for that earthly coup. Jesus continues to teach in the synagogue and warns the people to beware of the scribes. He warns against their haughty behavior and their need for recognition and honor. It can be so easy to follow and respect people who seem righteous, who are confident, who are very knowledgeable, but it's important for us as believers to constantly be on guard for leaders who follow the tradition of men, who have a good look without substance, and who prey on the weak. We end this section with the story of the widow's offering. We know the story. She gives two small copper coins that are nearly worthless in the economy of the day, but Jesus says this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had. Jesus calls us to give what is costly to us. What is costly to you? Is it your money? Is it your stuff? Is it your time? We need to remember that what is costly to us is not costly to others, and vice versa. We need to not put our, puff ourselves up with the costly things that we offer to God or look down on the small offerings of others. We don't know what is costly to others. We don't know their hearts. Let's consider an example. Maybe Bible study comes naturally to you. You love digging in with your colored pencils and your commentaries and your Greek and Hebrew interlinear Bible, interlinear Bibles, which I can't even say, and just, just devouring and discovering all the little nuggets. But maybe it's hard for you. Maybe you have trouble even reading through the text, not to mention getting through the questions and forget any extras but you press on. Which is more costly? Just something to think about. Jesus points over and over that the heart is the key. We should love the Lord with all we have, 
whether it's easy for us or hard for us in certain areas, we are to give all. We are called to set aside our self-righteousness and surrender to the authority and power of God. I'm going to close out here with a couple more quotes from Paul David Tripp. Um, sorry, not sorry for all the Paul David Tripp quotes, y'all. Um, the way that he writes just hits me like right between the eyes and points me to Jesus, so we're just going with it. Um, in his Lenten devotional, Journey to the Cross, uh, Tripp writes, It should be a warning to us that the religious leaders of Jesus' day could be so zealous and yet so completely wrong. And he continues that the humility of true religion has been replaced by religious pride. The religious leaders have a false religion full of self-righteousness and traditions of men, a false religion that does not need a savior. It's so easy to look back and think, oh, I wouldn't have been like that. I would have totally been sitting at Jesus' feet and following him around and proclaiming the gospel of God. But the sin that was inside the Pharisees still lives in us. We need to seek it out. We must address it, and we must drive it out and submit to the authority of God and walk in the abundant grace of Christ. So let's pray. Father, we're so grateful. We're so grateful for being able to be here and study your word and to discover all the beautiful things you have for us in your plan. Help us just to submit to your authority and to set aside our self-kingdoms of one for your glory, Lord. We just ask that um, as we go from this place, that we would just love each other well and love our neighbors as ourselves. In your name we pray. Amen.